The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Those of you who haven't been with us, for whatever reason, we are picking up on part five of a series I've been doing called What the Bible Says About... Actually, the past four summers, we've been doing what the Bible says about various practical topics, and uh, then we did what the Bible says about depression, and actually didn't finish and thought it was important and it's pertinent to most people's lives the bible addresses this all important issue so we are now in our fifth week and that's what we're doing today the goal and the intention is to kind of close things out and summarize what we've been talking about the last four weeks and finally end this five-week series on what the bible says about depression and then next week pick up on some good news or what to do about it or so what in light of all this miserable depression McManus you've been preaching on for five weeks Uh, but I will remind you of this inspired verse from Ecclesiastes Uh, you don't need to turn there but Ecclesiastes 3 the word of God says this there is a time for or there is an appointed time for everything there is a time for every event under heaven there is a time to weep There is a time to weep. It's appropriate. This is part of life. This is what God has made clear. You don't have to apologize when you're weeping. There is a time to weep. There is also a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn. There's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. That ties in directly with depression, as we've been talking about it, and distress. The anxieties of life that weigh people down, the trials of life that people go through and how they respond to it and deal with it uh, in terms of the circumstances of life and the emotion that goes with it and the trials that come with that and the temptations that come with that in light of our sinfulness and our limits and our finitude and all that goes with that appropriately so. Scripture is not idealistic or unrealistic or condescending to us as humans made in God's image. It says clearly there's a time to weep and there's a time to mourn. Life is to be lived in the balance of the circumstances of life. But the good news is there's not a period after either one of those. It's the balance is there's a time to laugh. There's a time to get through the depression, right? That's God's promise. And there's a way to that. Uh, There's a time to mourn, but there's also a time to dance. Notice the dancing comes after the mourning because that's God's desire for his children that they get through the valleys of life, seeking him, walking the life of faith. So... This is a reality and a part of the human experience. So we're going to look at a few scriptures today uh, to wrap up what we've been talking about on depression. I want to read Romans 15 as a springboard for some vignettes I want to read out of the Old Testament, highlighting just a few faithful saints who were real people. They were not made of marble. They were just like us, frail as can be, walked with feet of clay, struggled just as we do. And so we can identify with those people who live in the flesh in terms of humanity. Uh, Romans 15, 4, Paul says this to the Roman Christians. Paul says this to all of us who are Christians today. This is true for us. This is a promise. And not just a promise, it's also an exhortation and a reminder for anybody who's a Christian uh, Romans 15:4 for whatever was written in earlier times that's the old testament scriptures from Genesis 
to Malachi, all 39 of those Old Testament books. Don't ignore the Old Testament. The New Testament is not more important than the Old Testament. The New Testament isn't more relevant than the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not archaic and to be ignored and forgotten. It's the living Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, helpful for our growing, our training, our correction, our development and maturity and righteousness. So the Old Testament is just as vital, just as important, and even the foundation of the all-important New Testament. So Paul says, for whatever was written in earlier times in the Old Testament, for us, that's Genesis to Malachi, was written for our instruction, Christians. So Christians today are to be looking to the Old Testament to get instruction from Old Testament stories, history, and truth that is relevant and can carry over and apply to our life. So that's what I want to do today is, like I said, look at a couple of profiles and vignettes out of a few of the saints from the Old Testament that's reality. It actually happened. They were real people. There are eternal principles that transcend all of time, culture, and everything that it can apply to our life today. And we can fulfill Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in the Old Testament in earlier times, long ago, was written for our instruction. We need to heed it. We need to look at it, read it, learn it, follow it. And through persever- And as a result of looking at truths in the Old Testament and saints in the Old Testament and the God who acts in the Old Testament, who is the same God today, as a result of that, the purpose will be that through perseverance, that perseverance, that means trudging along, plugging along through the gauntlet of life, even when you fall down and get hit in the gut, you get back up and you keep walking in the direction God wants you to. That's perseverance. Keep on, keep it on. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a byproduct of the Spirit of God. It's actually the fruit and the evidence that you are truly born again. Perseverance. Perseverance. And one of the ways to get perseverance in this life, this life that is hard, this life that is difficult and filled with trials, the one of the ways that you get perseverance is from reading the Old Testament, being blessed and fed and encouraged and inspired by the Old Testament. So that's one of my desires for all of us to be encouraged from the truths of the Old Testament that we might persevere in light of that trial you don't want to face tomorrow or next week. You can persevere because God said so. Not only perseverance, but along with that is encouragement. We're going to look at the Old Testament so that we can gain perseverance and also the encouragement from the Scriptures. How do you you need to be encouraged? You're discouraged. You are distressed. You are depressed. You need encouragement. And God promised that that encouragement comes from Scripture, from the living Word of God. So uh, that's one of the beauties of going to the treasury of God's Word is we can find encouragement from God. And as a result, at the end of verse 4, it says, in order that we as believers, born-again Christians, might have hope. I said last week, one of the definitions of depression would be the opposite thereof. And the opposite of depression is joy. And joy and hope are tied hand in hand. Somebody who's depressed, what do they need? They need joy. Somebody who's depressed, what do they need? They need hope. Where do you get hope? Well, according to God, one of the key places you get hope is from the Scriptures. From reading the Scriptures, understanding the Scriptures, and asking God to help you apply the Scriptures to your, to your life. So let's go ahead and do that. And we're going to look at, I don't know how far we'll get, but I want to pick out a couple of them. I want to go back to Judges where we left off. Uh, actually, the end of Judges, the book of Ruth. And we're going to leave Naomi. And we're going to look at another couple of saints who struggled with depression. And just by way of summary, because I didn't finish the story with uh, Naomi in the book of Ruth. So... The beginning of your Bible after the book of Judges, we talked about 
uh, Naomi, who was a Jewish woman. She was a woman of faith. She was a woman of God. She knew and loved Yahweh. She was married and had a hubby, and she had two sons that she dearly loved. She lived in the area near Bethlehem, and there was a famine, so they left that area, and they went across the Jordan River into the despised and cursed nation of Moab, where there was ongoing false religion and idolatry, and they were a cursed people because of their antagonism to God's people Israel. But they went there anyway because there was food there, and so Naomi goes there with her husband and her two sons, and while there, Naomi's husband died. Seems somewhat suddenly, the details are not given, and she is immediately grieved because it was obvious and apparent that she loved her husband. And now she is alone. She was one with her spouse, and now a part of her has just been ripped out of her soul. And then uh, her two sons got married while they were in Moab. They married two Moabitess women. One of those women was named Ruth. Ruth became a believer. Then the two, uh, Naomi's two sons died in Moab, and she was grieved all the more. So now she's lost all the important beloved men in her life, her husband and her two sons. And so now she's a widow. She's grief-stricken. Uh, she stayed there for a period of almost 10 years. So we don't know how. And she went into a, a deep period and time of distress and even depression, frustration, confusion, anger at times, bitterness. We know specifically bitterness. The time frame given in the book of Ruth is about this whole sequence went on for about 10 years. We don't know exactly how long, but it wasn't uh, longer than 10 years. Then she decided to leave Moab, go back to her hometown because she heard that there was food there. So she left and she told her daughters-in-law, Ruth and the other, to stay behind. <clears throat> but they they loved Naomi, their mother-in-law. Um, one of the daughter-in-laws stayed back in Moab, but Ruth clung to Naomi became a believer, a follower of Yahweh, and followed Naomi back to her hometown in the land of Israel. And then we talked about last week how Naomi battled with God. She didn't abandon God. She kept praying. She had faith. She prayed for her daughters-in-law. So she was still clinging to the promises of Old Testament Scripture. She was still clinging to her personal relationship with Yahweh. But she was battling loneliness in her life. And she did battle with depression and was highly distressed. And so her and Ruth come back to town. People haven't seen her in 10 years. Uh, the ladies in town recognize her. Hey, that's that lady looks familiar. Hey, isn't that Ruth? And remember, we talked about, I mean, Naomi, isn't that Naomi? And Naomi, the Hebrew word for Naomi was pleasantness or sweetness. And they're saying, oh, there's the sweet lady. There's the pleasant lady. There's the happy lady. There's the fulfilled and satisfied lady. And Naomi heard of that. And she she was insulted by that. Because she wasn't happy, she wasn't pleasant, and she said, quit calling me that name. Call me bitter, because I've lost my husband, I've lost my sons. And so she was honest. I'm a bitter woman. I am distressed. And she's had conflict in her soul. Well, anyway, the story goes on. I wanted to give you the good news, and that's where we'll conclude, going to chapter 4. Well, it turns out God is faithful. And God provided a wonderful man of God for Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law. And as a result, oh, and then Ruth got pregnant, God opened her womb, and Ruth had a baby, a baby boy. And Naomi now is a grandma, and she is excited as can be. And you know, you grandmas know what I'm talking about with the birth of that new baby. 
And so that's in, so look at Ruth chapter 4. And what this does, this is the dispelling, the, this is how God alleviates this 10 year period of unfulfillment, loneliness, depression, and distress by being a living God and meeting people where they are at different phases in their life and replenishing that which was lost. And so it's just a beautiful story the way it all ends. Ruth does persevere. She walks through the hard gauntlet of life. She takes her shots. She wrestles with God. It's not always happy. As a matter of fact, she's miserable most of the time, but she still is a believer. And then Boaz and Ruth get married. Verse 13. The Lord opened her womb and Ruth is conceives. And get this, she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a redeemer today. Yahweh has not abandoned you, Naomi. Quit being bitter. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life. What do depressed people need? They need a restoration of life. May also be to you a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who loves you, who loves you. What do depressed people need? They need reminders that there are people who love them, who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons. Remember those two sons you lost? God gave you the gift of Ruth to fill in the void. Verse 16, does Naomi remain Mara, the Hebrew word for bitter? No. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap, like all good grandmas should do, and became, get this, became his nurse. The regular ongoing caretaker, a little baby. Some commentators say in Jewish tradition says, could very well be that grandma adopted this child formerly as her, as her own. We don't know that, but that's, a possibility because she became the regular ongoing full-time caretaker of this little baby boy. Verse 17, and the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to, get this, not to Ruth. A son has been born to Naomi, to grandma. Remember Naomi wanted to be called Mara, bitterness. So they named the cute little baby boy, that's the Living McManus translation, Obed, which is Hebrew for worshiper. The one who belongs to God. That's a delightful, beautiful, fulfilling, satisfying name of a great reminder always to Naomi. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Keep going. The father of David and on down the line. The father that brought the Messiah to the world. Isn't that amazing? Amen. So Naomi's story of bitterness and who knows up to a 10 year period of depression ends in just amazing good news where she was pulled out of the valley of depression notice she the things she did not resort to according to scripture when in her times of depression as she loses three immediate family members to death probably to sudden death few of us will face that in life to the degree that she did and she didn't resort to abandoning her faith totally she didn't resort to counsel of the world and unbelieving counsel she didn't resort to alcohol and drugs as far as we know she resorted to trusting in god persevering holding on to the promises of god uh, clinging to her faith that was she, she was raised to in light of the scriptures 
and walking in faith with the living God. And as a result, he met Naomi's needs. We need to do the same. We need to do the same. Okay, let's go to another lady who was confronted with depression for a different reason, but similar in her life. Just flip over uh, to 1 Samuel, the very next book. So here's another woman. Her name is Hannah. Hannah is married to a guy named Elkanah. Elkanah is a Jew. Hannah is Jewish. She is a believer. She loves God. She knows God. She has a personal relationship with the God of the universe. She knew him as Yahweh. Hannah was married to Elkanah. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says in verse 5 that Elkanah loved Hannah. He loved Hannah. It also says, and this kind of strikes us as weird, as New Testament Christians, that Elkanah had two wives. He was married to Hannah, and he was married to another woman, Peninnah. He had two wives, he's a polygamist, and then we would say, well, isn't that like a violation of the Bible? Isn't that like sinful? Yeah, it is sinful. The Mosaic Law is clear about it. One spouse and only one spouse. Genesis 2 is clear about it. One spouse and only one spouse. So yes, he was in sin. He compromised. But those of you who have never sinned, go ahead and cast the first stone at me. And none of us can throw stones. But God is gracious. The reason I pointed out in verse 5 that Elkanah, the Jewish man, loved Hannah is the text. It doesn't say that he loved Peninnah. But he definitely had a special affection for his wife Hannah. It could very well be, and this is kind of the tradition of this understanding, that he married Hannah first because that was his beloved. And then year after year went by and she could not conceive and bear children and bring an heir. And as a result, maybe Elkanah got another wife and got married to her to preserve the family line, which was common in their day. We don't know, but that's a high possibility. But he definitely has this very personal, sweet affection for Hannah, uh, his wife. Verse 5 says that the Yahweh closed Hannah's womb. God is ultimately totally in charge, and so for some reason, Hannah couldn't have a baby. But what did she want more than anything in those days? She wanted a baby. She wanted a child. That was the greatest gift God could give her. Next to her salvation and her husband would be to give birth. And she soon realized, her and her husband, that she couldn't have children. In verse 6, her rival, Peninnah, the other lady that her husband married. So imagine this, they have to live together somehow and commiserate and rub shoulders. I don't know if they're in separate tents or whatever. But I don't know about you, but think about your husband if you are married right now and if you had a second wife living in the house. uh Uh-oh, Houston, you would have a problem. And that's exactly what happened. There would be rivalry and understandably naturally so. And so that's why verse 6 says her rival, Hannah's rival, Hannah's enemy, you know, not real enemy, yes, enemy, competitor for the hubby's attention and devotion and loyalty and love as God designed in Genesis 2.24. The two should become one, not the three shall become one. So this is a dysfunctional family to the core. Well, her rival, however, the other wife lady would get this, would provoke Hannah bitterly to irritate her because Yahweh had closed her womb. Nanny, 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 you can't have any kids and I'm giving our husband all the kids. Can you imagine how unbelievably unloving, insulting, brash, hateful, it's, it's wicked. 
And she did it repeatedly. Verse 7, and it happened year after year after year after year after year after year. This did not go on for weeks. This didn't go on for months. This went on year after year after year. The greatest desire that Hannah had in her heart was to get married and to have children. And she was deprived of that year after year after year. And she spiraled into, I guarantee, distress and depression and sorrow over this. And that's why people I've talked to, I've counseled people since I've been a pastor, who people who are have distress and in depression because they are still single and have a desire to be married and years literally go by and they are frustrated. God, I'm trying to be content. God, I'm trying to be faithful. God, I'm trying to pray. God, I'm trying to do it right. God, I'm trying to be satisfied. God, I'm trying to seek your will. And they can't figure it out. Why am I still single? Why can't I find a spouse? I thought marriage was a good thing. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Says Proverbs 18, it is not good for a man to be alone. Scripture is clear on that. And so here's Hannah having to contend with not having children. So people struggle with different things uh, in terms of their personal life, whether they can't find a spouse or whether they can't have children. I've counseled people uh, who couples who wanted to have children and were literally distressed and wrestled with God and had questions and asked questions and couldn't find the answers. God, why can't we have a baby? Did I sin? Did I do something in my life that you're judging me for and you're punishing me for depriving me as a result? And it weighs down heavy on their heart. So this is a very personal, intimate thing that Hannah couldn't have a child. And then to top it off, she's getting mocked by this fellow wife who shares her household and her husband. And it happened year after year. And so often, verse 7, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord in the tabernacle, she would uh, provoke her. Here, Hannah tries to go up and worship and she's getting taunted the whole time. And get this, here's the evidence of her distress and her depression. Verse 7 is she wept. It was an ongoing state. She couldn't eat. She lost her appetite. Very common of people who are dealing with depression and sadness and distress in their life. You lose your appetite. Verse 8, and then her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? There's a great Hebrew expression for depression. Why is your heart sad? And in the wisdom, wisdom of a typical husband talking to his wife, trying to comfort her, am I not better to you than ten sons? Hey, I'm the best husband around. You don't realize what you've got. Boy, that was really comforting. That didn't do any good. Um, verse 9, then Hannah rose up, eating and drinking uh, in Shiloh. Eli the high priest, verse 10, and then it emphasizes she was greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. So we don't know how long, other than the fact that this went on year after year, where she was battling distress, heaviness of heart, what we might call depression in terms of how it manifests itself. But look what Hannah did. She didn't resort to worldly counsel, alcohol, drugs, or woe is me, um, suicide, and many other things. What did she do? She prayed to Yahweh. She prayed to Yahweh. She had a personal relationship with God. That's where we got to go first. She prayed to Yahweh, wrestled with God in prayer year after year, and she she continued to weep bitterly. Notice just because she prayed didn't solve all of her problems. She prayed and she wasn't, oh, I'm happy now. She prayed and she was still weeping. That's reality. So she talks to God in prayer, verse 11, and she refers to her affliction. God, look down on my affliction. Tormented in her soul. Verse 12 says she continued to pray. She kept praying. She persevered in her prayer life and trust and faith in Almighty God, her blessed Savior. Well, the good news uh, 
in verse 19, God remembered her prayer. God remembered her prayer. God answered her prayer. God answers the prayers of the saints. Sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's wait. Sometimes it's here. There's something else. But God remembered her prayer, and it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived, she bore a child. And God brought her out of that time of bitterness by not having any offspring, and she just rejoiced greatly. So happily ever after, at least in that scenario, but that's not always how life ends. But here is the faithfulness of God meeting her specific need. Okay, one more, one more believing saint who battled with depression. Go to Job. Now, keep flipping towards the middle of your Bible now, the book of Job. We referred to Job earlier, and I would say that Few people on planet Earth have gone through more trials, temptations, suffering than Job did. What did he go through? Well, verse 1 in Job chapter 1 says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. This is an amazing statement. Okay, there's this guy named Job. He was blameless. He was upright. He feared God, turned away from evil. Okay, four adjectival descriptions of what Job was like in terms of his character and his faith. The writer is being emphatic. I want you to get it clear. Job is a believer. Job is a believer. Job loves God. God loves Job. Why does the inspired author want to communicate that clearly? Because for the next 42 chapters, I believe, the inspired author and God himself does not want believers to be confused about what happens to Job. Well, what happens to Job? Well, Job is subjected to the worst kind of horror and affliction and suffering in the history of humanity, and God doesn't want us to think that it was all due to Job's sin. Job doesn't go under all this, undergo all this because he was sinful, because he disobeyed God, because he was an unbeliever, because he deserved it. He was a godly man. I can't think of Hardly anybody in the entire Bible that is described in one verse with four adjectives talking about their godliness. That doesn't mean he was perfect. He was a sinner. These terms are very specific. Hebraisms. Saying that four different ways of saying that he knew God, loved God, followed God, walked with God, believed in God, trusted God, knew God, was forgiven by God, was in the family of God, was in the covenant of Yahweh. He knew God. He's a believer. And then he is subjected to the following. Uh, And we talked about six causes of depression. One of those can be demonic, satanic, the work of Satan. Not always, but can be. And so that was the case with Job. The devil is real. Satan is real. We see Satan uh, making deals with God in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. God allows Satan to subject Job to the trials of life to try to cause his faith to... um, diminish in God, but he was a true believer. So God knew, now Job, I don't care what you throw at Job, Satan. Job is going to persevere. He's a true believer. It'll be hard. It'll be painful. He will struggle. He will weep. He will cry. He will have low times, but he will persevere. He is one of mine. And as Jesus said, no one can snatch them from my hand. No one can snatch a believer from God's hand. No one, not even Satan himself. And so just real quickly, uh, Job chapter 1, verse 14. Here are the four, there are four incidents that happen in like succession, machine gun-like fashion that Job is subjected to severe trials in his life. 
satanically orchestrated and spearheaded to try to undermine Job's faith and to abandon his faith and throw in the towel and say, forget it, I don't believe in God anymore. Curse God, I'm going to kill myself. So here are the four things that happened in his life. He was a rich man, by the way. He was wealthy. And that was not sinful. That was a blessing from God. So he was a God. He had ten children. I had, my mom had ten children. I was number ten. So here's what happened. Um, So it happened when his ten sons and daughters were together having fellowship for all we know that a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans, uh, some people attacked and took them and they also slew the servants. So Job, uh, some enemies came in and they slaughtered your oxen and a whole bunch of your slaves and servants. And then that messenger's not even done and then the second event comes uh, of an assault on his family. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said to Job, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up all of your sheep and the servants with it and it consumed them all. This is his wealth that's being consumed. I mean, this is shocking. This would be like somebody saying, your house burned down today and everything that you possessed. That would be devastating, wouldn't it? And that's what happened. And so he, Job can't even recover emotionally from this when, boom, Satan hits him again, verse 17. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said to Job, the Chaldeans, these were the Babylonians, a wicked people, formed three bands and they made a raid on your camels and they took them and they slew the servants uh, related to your camels. <laughs> Another huge investment that Job had gone, just like that. Boom, 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 three in a row. And then finally, the worst one of all, verse 18, while I was still speaking, another came also and said, Job, your sons and your daughters, all ten of your children that you love, we know that he loved them earlier in the passage, they were eating and drinking. That just means they were uh, having fellowship together in their older brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness like a tornado came through and struck the four corners of the house. The house fell on the young people and all ten of your children died. This is a true story. Tragic. This is devastating. What would you do? Somebody comes to you and says, um, your two children have been reported to be dead because they died in a head-on car accident driving back to wherever, cross-country. I can't imagine. All ten of your children, dead. I remember when we had Matthew Rare come and speak about a year ago. Dear brother from uh, whom I've known for 14 years. And he's now at North Creek Church in Walnut Creek. And he came a year ago and shared how his two siblings that he loved, two sisters, and his parents, all four believers, this was, I don't know how many years ago now, he was going to meet them. In Texas for a family vacation, those four were driving on one Texas highway and they were going to meet Matthew and they got hit head on by a semi and instantly took their life. All four. Tragic. That's what happened here. Well, how did Job respond to this unexpected tragedy? So devastating. Do you remember what Matthew Rare said and told us? when he talked on the phone and got the call from the highway uh, police department that his family died. He said the first thought that came to his mind was a prayer. God, don't let me get angry at you. How appropriate. 
That's a real prayer from somebody who knows God. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. That's a natural, acceptable, appropriate human reaction. Grief. Grief. Mourning. Sorrow. That's how he should respond, but it didn't stop there. And then he fell to the ground and he worshipped God. That's a unique response that you don't find in the world. This is somebody who knew God seriously, personally, intimately in great faith. How many times do we see a tragedy told to us on television or the news? We don't hear people saying, and those who are involved worshiped God as a result. That's not the primary message. Really, what do we hear? Is why God, why did you abandon these people? God, why did you do this? That's what we hear. The grief is acceptable and normal. And then the beautiful balance of a believer. He he worshiped God. Listen to his prayers. Unbelievable. Verse twenty one, Job prayed, cried out, Naked I came from my mother's woman, naked I shall return. The Lord Yahweh gave, and the Lord Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Well, it didn't end happily ever after, after that prayer. Just because he prayed that and really believed it and it honored God in the midst of his tragedy, it didn't remove the pain, the grief, the sorrow, the depression. How do we know? Because the whole book says he continued to grieve and question and battle and wrestle with God in his mind, his emotions, his prayer life, grasping for answers. Then he's subjected to another trial by Satan in chapter 2 where Satan says, I want to I touch Job this time. And God said, fine, go ahead. You can touch him, you can harass him, but you can't kill him. And so uh, there's a satanic attack and it says that Satan had uh, Job covered with boils from head to toe. And he was just a gruesome mess and it was painful and he scarred up and scabbed up and probably couldn't even hardly move. And he began to scrape himself, the scabs, from all over his body. And later on in chapter 7, he said that worms began to just infest his entire exterior body. Worms. He was a heinous thing to even behold, according to Job, as his friends couldn't even recognize him when they saw him and heard about his incident. But his friends did come and they tried to sympathize and comfort him. But before that, meanwhile... It doesn't say anything about his wife until now. So Job did have a wife, and she was one with Job, and she's seeing all this happen. You can imagine the grief of a mother who's lost all ten children, as she has. And then now her husband has been cursed with this plague, and she is just undone and overwhelmed. Look at her reaction. Verse 9 of chapter 2, Then Job's wife said to Job, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Do you still believe that prayer that you prayed in chapter 1? The Lord gives and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the... Do you really believe that? You get the impression that she doesn't believe that. That's why she tells her husband, curse God and die. She's really tempting and calling her husband to commit suicide. Wow. Look at Job's response. Uh, verse 10, but Job said to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. This is an appropriate rebuke of somebody who's speaking sin. 
You are speaking foolishly. You are you are speaking blasphemously. Don't do that. Shall we indeed accept accept good from God and not accept adversity? And get this, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So was it appropriate for him to rebuke his wife pointedly? Absolutely. Did he sin or degrade her by saying, you speak as one of the foolish ones? No, she, he, he spoke truth. It was an appropriate rebuke she needed to hear. And that's why Jesus said, you need to love me more than you love your spouse. And Job fulfilled that right here. He didn't sin with his lips. And then you go on for this journey for another 40 chapters to see where Job ends up. And he, he persevered. It wasn't easy. So if you battle with depression, your nose should be in the book of Job. That's why God gave it to us. And guess what's at the end? Hope. Actually, what's all throughout? Hope. Hope. The character of God. The promises of God. The faithfulness of God. The security of the believer. Another beautiful thing that depressed people need to hear is they need to hear about the reality of life. Reality, the, the reality of life is life is not easy. Life, you live in a cursed world. We live in a fallen world. Life is not easy. And anybody that tells you that is not telling you the truth. Anybody that tells you you always need to be happy, they are lying to you. You are being deceived. That's a lie of the world. Don't believe the commercials. Life is hard. That's, you need a realistic, we need a realistic view of life. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. And those are the things that we can learn from saints who have gone before us. Well, with that, I want to address one more question. And then next week, what I want to do actually is lay out several, and I mean several because I've been tabulating them, some specific truths and principles to consider to deal with depression if you're currently in it, to battle through it, to get through it, and also some preventative principles to do to help prevent it and safeguard against it happening needlessly maybe in the future. And there are plenty of biblical principles and they're amazing. And these are all right out of Scripture. And they're incredibly practical and they can bring us joy even in the midst of sorrow. So that's the goal next week that I'm going to do. But I want to conclude with this. Somebody asked me during the series, they have, you know, they know somebody who's an unbeliever And the question was, well, how do you, if, if there's an unbeliever dealing and battling with distress or depression in their life, how do you counsel them? That's a, that is a great question. That's actually a hard question. Because remember when I, last week I spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'll just read it to you by way of reminder. It's a wonderful promise to Christians. Uh, Paul says, no temptation, no trial of life, no hardship of life has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Uh, if you're in a problem right now, everybody's been in that problem before. There are people in that problem. You're not in a unique situation. People have been down this road before. This is common. You don't have unique trials, really. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to everybody else. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He's true to his word. He is still there. That's how, by the way, if you were reading carefully, Ruth, how she came out of her depression, Hannah, how she came out of her depression, and Job, how does he come out of depression? It is all theocentric. It's going first and foremost and always clinging to their God, to their Savior that they know personally, walking the walk of faith, clinging to God. That's how they persevered. That's how they made it. And that's why uh, when we have a problem, we need to go to God first, not human solutions or human wisdom. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not allow you, Christian. He will not. Here's what I wanted you to keep in mind. The pronouns in verse 13, you. No temptation has overtaken you, Christian. 
but such is common to man or humanity. And God is faithful who will not allow you, Christian, to be tempted beyond what is what able you, Christian, are able to bear. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape in order that you, believer, may be able to endure it. I emphasize that because this promise is not true for an unbeliever. An unbeliever can't look at this verse and just implement it the way a Christian can. They don't have the same faith and hope that we do in the reality of this verse. So there needs to be a distinction made between a believer and an unbeliever. So somebody asked me, how do you counsel an unbeliever with depression? A very complicated and difficult. I have, as a pastor, counseled unbelievers who are dealing with depression. I mean, people have referred unbelievers to me specifically for cases of depression. And you listen to their story. And the depression is, uh, their marriage is horrible, uh, their work is horrible, or they don't have a job, or, or whatever it is. They, those are the surface issues they're dealing with. But the ultimate reality is always the same. And so when you're dealing with an unbeliever, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2 in your New Testament. And we will close on this truth. Now, think about anybody that you know in your life that is not a Christian. Anybody in your life you know that is not a believer, they're not born again, that's who we're thinking about now. As you're thinking about, put names and faces. It could be direct family members you have. It could be uh, neighbors. It could be colleagues at work. People very close to you. But you know they don't know Christ. They're not believers. Then you, you need to fine-tune and be reminded of how you need to think about that unbeliever. This is incredibly vitally important. Scripture is clear on it. Um, I think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.16 Key verse, the Apostle Paul said there are only two kinds, this is a, a paraphrase, there are only two kinds of people in the world, believers and unbelievers. That's it. That's how, first and foremost, a Christian should think about unbelievers that they know. It's not, oh, he's a really good neighbor, he keeps his yard clean, but he's not saved. And the other guy on the other side, he's not such a good neighbor. He's not very nice or cordial or friendly. And he yells at my dog. And he's kind of a slob over there and doesn't keep, he doesn't pull his weeds. And he's not a believer either. And so the balance weighs in favor of the uh, unbelieving neighbor over here. So you've got the sliding scale of the virtue of unbelievers. That is not found in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5.16, the Apostle Paul says that he came to a point in his life with the discipline of assessing every human being in one of two ways. Not in a, on a fleshly level, but from a spiritual point of view. They are either believers or unbelievers. That needs to be first and foremost in our mind about how we think about people. It's all over Scripture. Jesus did that because in Matthew, early on in the Gospel, he referred to the righteous and the unrighteous. That's, Jesus categorized all humanity into those two categories. The righteous and the unrighteous. Believers, unbelievers. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. John the Apostle did the same thing in First John chapter 3 and chapter 4. He said... There are the sons of God and there are the sons of the devil. That's it. Jesus said the same thing in John 8. You're either of your father, the devil, or you are the father of almighty God. Two categories of people. Now look at Ephesians chapter 2. What does a depressed person need? What is the opposite of depression? I said it was joy. And what does a depressed person need more than anything else? They need hope. They need hope. It's supernatural hope. It is biblical hope. And it means something very specific. And so that's why, let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's talking to Christians, 
And he's reminding them about their biography before they were saved. This is what you were like before you became a Christian. This was true of me. You were dead. You were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. That's who you were. So when you're thinking about this unbeliever that you know that lives with you or next to you, and they're not a Christian, what are they? They are spiritually dead. They do not respond to spiritual stimuli. That's how you need to think about them. They're dead in their sins. Verse 2, in which you also formerly once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. They are offspring of the prince of the power of the air. What are unbelievers? Who are they? They are offspring of Satan. And before I got saved, I was a child of Satan. There's only two categories of people. Well, what else about unbelievers? Uh, the prince of the power of the air, verse 2, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, they are children of disobedience. As a Christian, I am a child of obedience. Anybody that I know in my life, they are children of disobedience. I didn't make this up. This comes from God's word. He is the one speaking authoritatively. That's how we need to view unbelievers. Verse 11, skip down. Therefore, remember, Christian, that formerly you... As a Gentile, as a pagan, before you became a Christian, you were in the flesh. You were uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which performed uh, verse 12. Remember that you, Christian, were at that time, here it is, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, and you were having no hope in the world. That is true of every unbeliever. Ultimately, they have no hope hope in this world i recently heard an amazing testimony of somebody telling me how they came to christ and they said they had achieved everything that the world had to offer and when they had everything the world had to offer in terms of possessions money job they they were still empty and they had no hope they still felt like they were missing something that's what this is they didn't have hope so Anybody that you know is not a believer, they don't have hope. They are without hope in the world. That's why I think of uh, Elvis Presley and all kinds of other famous people. He had everything the world had to offer. He was the king. That's what they called him. There was no more successful person than Elvis Presley. And over the course of decades, he was empty and he had no hope in the world because he did not know Jesus Christ personally. And he had to fill the void somehow. And he did it with alcohol, and that didn't work. And then he did it with drugs, and that didn't work. And so he had to get more drugs and more drugs and more drugs until eventually that killed him. That is so common. It happens all the time. People trying to fill that void because they have no hope. And the Bible is clear. There's only one hope. There's only one thing that will fulfill the void of people, especially down people, distressed people. They need hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I referred to Colossians 1 earlier that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And in closing, I want to go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll close with this to find out where our hope is. So this is for believers and unbelievers. Uh, When it comes to if you're counseling unbelievers, you don't just ignore unbelievers that God puts in your life. You you do want to encourage them. You want to help them. You want to minister to them. So you want to give them hope. And you don't want to give them superficial hope that doesn't last in your counsel you have got to give them the greatest hope of all and that's the good news the good news about jesus christ and you actually have to be honest and tell them you're depressed you're distressed you're not really not going to come out of this you're never going to be fulfilled unless you come to know jesus christ personally that's what i believe and that's what god's word says and that is my desire and prayer for you 
And if you want me to help you in that area, I can. And I'm going to continue to pray for you. But they, the main thing they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ that can provide them with hope. And so First Peter 1 says, talking to Christians, in this great reality that you have been saved, you greatly rejoice right now, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You're going to, find, you're going to deal with trials in your life and you're going, to be, you're going to get down, Christian. You're going to get down and what you need is hope. So that's why Peter goes on into verse 13. He talks about hope. Therefore, gird your minds. Uh, be disciplined in your thinking, which also will be disciplined in your emotions. Keep sober in how you think and fix your hope. There it is completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then again, in verse 21, our hope is in Jesus Christ, him alone, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So when you're dealing with an unbeliever and giving them counsel, Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news has to be the very core and foundation of what you give to them. You give them the gospel and also meet their practical needs any way that you can out of loves of service and loves of good deeds, as Jesus told us to do, and also uh, the book of Titus that we studied earlier. Uh, so this morning, if you are battling with depression, I'm hoping that we've given you enough resources from Scripture at this point to help you fight the battle and keep plugging along. And I'm going to be more specific and exhaustive next week on things you can do to help from a biblical point of view and a biblical lifestyle, really, as a believer, to keep trudging along in this life. And to those of you who don't know Jesus Christ personally right now in this life, you're not born again. He is the only place where you can find true hope, true satisfaction, true fulfillment. And so I would encourage you, I would plead with you to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, who came to seek and to save those who are lost and go to him, admit to him that you are a sinner, admit to him that you are helpless, admit to him that he's the only one that can save you, acknowledge the fact that he came and lived a perfect life as the God-man, that he willingly went to the cross, was crucified as the innocent Savior, and while on the cross he absorbed the wrath of Almighty God the Father as your substitute. So that when he was buried and Jesus rose again from the dead, he did that for you. He conquered sin, death, hell, the devil for you. And all you have to do is understand that, believe it, and cry out to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, the sinner. If you understand that and mean that, cry out to him. He'll answer that prayer. He will change your life. Let's go to this gracious God and Savior in prayer. Father, we do thank you for our time together. Thank you for meeting us in a very real way through your Holy Spirit through the encouragement of the saints and through the power of your word. We pray that you're glorified in all that we do. But God, we need your help. Go before us now this day and this very week and help us to continue to meditate on your glories as revealed in your word that you might be glorified in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.